Welcome to Science or Fiction, a podcast by sci-fi author Michael James Sharon. In this program, we'll be discussing science, fiction, and the often blurred spaces between the two. Here we try to dispel common scientific misconceptions by both Hollywood and the media, even that which is meant to be educational. My background includes a Bachelor of Science and Master of Arts in Physics with experience in both R&D and production. I hope you enjoy these podcasts, and if there are comments or input, please direct them via the contact page for my website, michaelsbookcorner.com. The last 30 years or more have seen an explosion in forensics programs, such as Quincy, the numerous CSI programs, NCIS, Forensic Files, no doubt I've missed several more in between and since. Again, the caution is against overuse of the word science. Granted, techniques have grown increasingly sophisticated and accurate if used properly, and therein lies the rub. Modern forensic science in the realm of police work stems from the 1840s in France, where pioneers began using the newly invented photograph. Photographs of those arrested then were the original mugshots. The French government began filing and categorizing these photos in a central repository in Paris. In this way, comparisons, though tedious, could still be made, and dossiers or arrest records be compiled. Later, in the 19th century, fingerprints, too, were added to the mix. In various countries, the advancement of tools derived from the latest breakthroughs in chemistry and physics were added. As described later, these methods were not always proven. The FBI, under J. Edgar Hoover, created the first national crime lab in the United States, and perhaps the first in any state in the country. This was a wise move and has likely put many of the worst offenders away. A running theme in science or fiction is the constant warning regarding that logical fallacy, appeal to authority. Before we could walk, we've been indoctrinated to believe that alleged authority figures in society be they government prosecutors, academics, or scientists. One only has to examine the numerous disasters in their wake to be wise to this. We're told to trust the science, but valid concepts are often intermingled with those which are completely bogus. In the 19th century, for example, we had the so-called science of phrenology. For those not familiar, phrenology or frenetics was a process of taking measurements of the subject's bodily features, typically those of the face and skull. The belief was that the shape of the skull, including lumps and other perceived abnormalities, were a mirror into the brain, and thus the mental state and or capacity of that person. If the brain and mind were so closely linked, then this was thought reasonable. Spacing of the eyes, size, shape, or placement of the nose and mouths were catalogued into various types. Of course, this is completely absurd and rarely mentioned today, but was this so long ago? It is not clear to me if phrenology began as a thinly veiled justification for racial bigotry, but it is not difficult to see how such notions are quickly transformed. Human features prominent in minority ethnic groups, of course, ended up in related categories, only reinforcing racial prejudice. With the introduction of Darwin's theory of evolution, the founders for eugenics were laid, largely by Darwin's own nephew. I don't believe Darwin himself followed this gross mischaracterization of his findings. Eugenics was taken up 
by the Ivy League universities, such as MIT and Harvard, with half the state universities in the U.S., as well as Oxford and Cambridge in the U.K., with so much gravitas being lent to racial bias or a promoted hierarchy based on ethnicity, it is no surprise that law enforcement eagerly reinforced it. How many convictions or plain lynchings were based on the so-called science? Even with the advent of truly scientific analysis, such as fingerprints, how much of that evidence never made it into the courtrooms? It is up to the prosecutor, after all, to decide what evidence is relevant in a case. If this is not a conflict of interest, then perhaps someone can explain it to me. The product of prosecutors is convictions, after all. We do not have to go back over a century to find bogus science. We only have to look at the much-vaunted FBI crime lab. For decades, the FBI claimed to be able to identify persons from hair samples before DNA analysis. As it turns out, there is nothing to this claim. Testimony from FBI analysts have put scores of people in prison, and many have been executed. Not surprisingly, this story has largely escaped public scrutiny, so I will recap. This is from Whistleblower Network News 2015. Quote, As head of the National Whistleblower Center's Forensic Justice Department, Dr. Whitehurst compiled data from cases in which the FBI had given flawed testimony on hair analysis and compared that to the information that was released by the FBI and DOJ under FOIA. Dr. Whitehurst first raised these systemic problems at the FBI lab more than 20 years ago. In April 2015, the FBI admitted the FBI lab's forensic hair analysis used for decades in state and federal criminal cases were flawed and inaccurate more than 90% of the time. The recent reviews reported by the Washington Post in April 2015 were the direct result Dr. Whitehurst's initial whistleblower disclosures between 1995 and 1997. Although Dr. Whitehurst was highly criticized and subjected to severe retaliation by the FBI for raising these concerns more than 20 years ago, the admission by the FBI demonstrates that he was right. Unquote. Along the same lines, the pattern recognition, identifying the exact gun firing a particular bullet retrieved from a crime scene, is highly subjective and therefore suspect. We've all been indoctrinated with this technique in one cop show after another. Then we have the instances of several state crime labs, such as Massachusetts and Texas. These have been the center of scandals whereby cases were processed by rubber stamp for decades. In Massachusetts, cases were processed at double the accepted rate for years, making many a prosecutor and cop very happy. From MSN News, quote, Private attorneys and state attorney general Maura Healy have announced a $14 million civil settlement with roughly 31,000 criminal defendants whose cases were thrown out over the sweeping taint of two separate state drug lab scandals nearly a decade before. After their cases were thrown out at the beginning of 2017, many had already incurred court fees and other expenses as the cost of being prosecuted, according to Northampton attorney Luke Ryan, one of the lead attorneys in a class action lawsuit filed against the state, and an attorney in the Farrick case. Farrick was a drug-addicted lab chemist in Amherst who admitted to using many of the drugs she was tasked with testing on a nearly daily basis for years. Annie Dukin, a Boston-based drug lab chemist who also worked for the state, 
trumped-up drug results without doing legitimate tests in her zeal for being a standout worker at the facility. Both were criminally prosecuted and pleaded guilty to crimes leading to prison sentences. The dual scandals had a profound impact on the court system as tens of thousands of drug cases were nullified by the Supreme Judicial Court between 2017 and 2019, unquote. And the following, from an article by Houston criminal attorney John Floyd and paralegal Billy Sinclair, indicates this is a nationwide problem in the United States. Quote, West Virginia State Police Fred Zane was hired by the West Virginia Department of Public Safety as a forensic expert in 1979 and rose to the position of Chief of Serology before being terminated in 1998. Zane was loved by prosecutors across the nation who frequently used him as an expert witness, including Austin and Bexar County, Texas prosecutors. Before his death in 2002, Zane is known to have falsified tests in as many as 134 cases. In the wake of a review of his work with San Antonio prosecutors, Zane was charged in Hondo, Texas with aggravated perjury, evidence tampering, and fabrication of evidence in the 1990 wrongful rape conviction in Gilbert, Alejandro. A half dozen other Texas convictions involving Zane's testimony were overturned, but Zane escaped responsibility with his death in 2002. In the Oklahoma City Crime Lab, Joyce Gilchrist worked as a forensic chemist for the Oklahoma City Police Department. She earned the moniker Black Magic for her testimony in 23 death penalty cases, which resulted in 11 executions. After participating in more than 3,000 cases during her two decades with the Oklahoma City Crime Lab, 1,700 of those convictions were based primarily on her testimony. She was fired following accusations that she had falsified evidence. She adamantly denied the charges. However, Curtis McCarty was released from death row in 2007, where he had been confined for the previous two decades because Oklahoma courts found that Gilchrist either altered or lost evidence. Then the Houston Police Department crime lab in 2002, accusations began to surface that analysts with the Houston crime lab were either conducting faulty DNA analysis or presenting evidence in such a biased manner as to secure convictions. In 2003, a DPS audit confirmed the accusations. Retested crime lab evidence resulted in the reversal of at least six convictions. This led to a 2007 investigative report that found the crime lab had presented highly questionable evidence in more than 400 cases. In 2008, the crime lab supervisor and two analysts were forced to resign in the wake of yet another cheating scandal. Jim Fisher is a former FBI agent and a professor at Edinburgh University in Pennsylvania, where he teaches criminal justice. He is also the author of a 2008 book titled Forensics Under Fire, Are Bad Science and Dueling Experts Corrupting Criminal Justice? The CSI effect has caused jurors to expect crime lab results far beyond the capacity of forensic science, he wrote. He charged that the, our 21st century criminal justice system is incapable of differentiating between valid research and junk science. A 2009 report by the National Academy of Sciences agreed. The report, titled Strengthening Forensic Science in the United States, A Path Forward, sent a clear, unmistakable warning to all law enforcement crime labs across the country. 
a warning either not heard or heeded by DPS in the Salvador case. J.A. Siegel, a member of the Academy, said people like Salvador are not scientists and do not know what validating evidence is, much less understanding what it means to validate a test. It's called voodoo science, and Siegel said that judges just don't understand a thing about it, and that's the fact. Only 4% of the 400 state court judges who participated in a 2001 survey had a clear understanding of the science, including fingerprint, ballistics, voice, handwriting, chemical analysis. As the prominent Heritage Edwards, a judge on the D.C. Court of Appeals, once observed, the partisan adversarial system used in the courts to determine the admissibility is often inadequate to the task, and because the judicial system embraces a case-by-case adjudicatory approach, the courts are not well suited to address the systemic problems in many of the forensic science disciplines. Unquote. In Massachusetts, there were questionable convictions in as many as 71,000 cases. Likely, the real number will never be known, as government cannot be trusted to grade itself. So we have a so-called justice system based upon some good science, but completely intertwined with highly suspect techniques and human beings. Even if the science is valid, how often will it actually be used? It was estimated only a few years ago there were over 400,000 untested rape kits in the U.S. In recent years, there have been new funds earmarked for clearing this backlog. But there are several states with thousands of kits still waiting, if they could still be found, that is. Sexual assault is particularly egregious as perpetrators typically do not commit single crimes, but are serial offenders. Those affected are victimized by the perpetrator and, when reporting the crime, are subjected to yet another degrading procedure in assembling the rape kit. If that evidence goes into a warehouse, this constitutes victimization by the state. DNA provided by several victims could well establish the identity and pattern of the perpetrator, but the uncaring machine of the state cannot be moved. Fifty years ago, around half of those dying under known and unknown circumstances were autopsy. Today, this number is maybe 5%. As with the rape kits, even when the science is sound, it is like a tree falling in the forest. It means nothing if there is no one there who cares enough to analyze and interpret it correctly. I hope you've enjoyed this program written and presented by author Michael James Sharon in conjunction with my many science fiction novels. Please visit the website michaelsbookcorner.com to see what is on offer. A new episode of Science or Fiction will be brought to you each week. Thank you for listening.